Now, there are certain fundamental distinctions between civil law and criminal law, right? And the first such distinction is the parties that we are referring to. So, if you recall, in the civil law context, we mentioned that you would either have a plaintiff or an applicant who would bring a case against a defendant or a respondent, depending on whether you are looking at action proceedings under civil law or application proceedings under civil law. And this relationship between the applicant and the uh, respondent or the plaintiff and the defendant is referred to as a horizontal relationship. And the reason why it's referred to as a horizontal relationship is because these parties essentially are on equal terms. Whereas when you look at the, under criminal law, you will see that, number one, you will always have the state as one of the parties, and there's a top-down relationship. There's this vertical relationship and an uneven relationship in which the state sits at the top and the particular queue sits at the bottom, and it would be the state who initiates proceedings against the queues. It's always for the state to decide whether or not the state will initiate proceedings against the accused. And unlike in civil proceedings where the defendant or the respondent has the opportunity to say, no, I don't want to be involved in this case, I will settle the matter, the accused doesn't have a say as to whether or not the prosecution, of course, goes ahead. Now, if you recall, under civil law, we discussed who is responsible for proving the particular case. And we said that because the plaintiff initiates the case, the burden of proof would then rest, the responsibility would then rest on the plaintiff to prove the case because he who asserts must prove. Or if a defendant raises the, the uh, potential defense, then it is on the defendant to prove that defense because the defendant is asserting that defense. So under civil law, when it comes to establishing the burden of proof, the burden of proof rests on the applicant or the plaintiff, where the applicant or plaintiff is bringing the case because they are making the allegation, right? They are, are claiming that a case exists that ought to be made, right? Mm. Whereas in criminal proceedings, the burden of proof will always rest on the state. And this is because criminal proceedings have significant consequences for an accused and criminal proceedings are shaped by the responsibility of the state in order to protect society. So the burden of proof will always rest upon the state because the state is always the party that is bringing the matter to court. Now, when we're looking at the burden of proof, it's important to remember that the accused has certain constitutional rights, right? And one of those constitutional rights is section 353H in the Bill of Rights. And what this um, section provides is that the accused will always be presumed innocent, right? There's a presumption of innocence. And because there is that presumption of innocence, the responsibility, the onus, the burden for proving the case will always rest on the state. Now, we've established who the responsibility rests on in order to, to, to prove a case, right? To prove the accused guilt. The next question becomes, what standard of proof must the state as the responsible party to meet the burden of proof 
match, right? What standard of proof must the state meet in order to have the accused held responsible? And we, of course, all know the famous terminology beyond a reasonable doubt, okay? So the standard of proof that the state must meet in criminal proceedings, unlike in civil proceedings, we are now dealing with beyond a reasonable doubt. You'll recall in civil proceedings, we spoke about a balance of probabilities and how the case need only to lean slightly in a particular party's favor in order for that party to be successful. Whereas in criminal law, we have this beyond a reasonable doubt standard. And what this beyond a reasonable doubt standard means is that if you if you look at the, the facts, right, and if you assess the facts, then the burden of proof is met. The state has proved it beyond a reasonable doubt their case. If the only reasonable inference that can be drawn from the case, right, the only reasonable inference that one can conclude when you look at all of the facts that the presiding officer can conclude is that the accused is guilty of the particular offense he's being brought to book for, right? And so beyond a reasonable doubt means that guilt has been established, right? Because the only reasonable inference that can be drawn is that the accused is in fact guilty, right? And we all know the famous example of Oscar Pistorius in which the, the state was able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Oscar was guilty of killing Riva, right? There's another very famous decision the Van Breda decision that some might be familiar with and, and uh, Henry Van Breda was accused of murdering his brother and his father and his mother and the attempted murder of his sister. So essentially almost wiping out his entire immediate family. And it was Van Breda himself who had called the police, called the emergency services rather, and had asked emergency services to come to the house because there had been this um, several murders committed and when they arrived at the house he was in his pajamas he was in blood covered in blood and and he was um, basically uh, alleging that he was also a victim of this crime and the presiding officer had to uh, establish whether or not Van der Breda who lived in this um, Stellenbosch security controlled estate right was guilty of murder so the state who bears the burden of proof had to establish the guilt of an of Henry van der Breda, van Breda and had to do so beyond a reasonable doubt. And one of the arguments that the defense made was that the state's case was weak because it was only circumstantial evidence, right? And one of the things that the judge said is that even if we just look at the circumstantial evidence from the case, the only reasonable inference that could be drawn from the facts of that particular case was that Van Breda was in fact guilty of murdering his parents and his brother and he was guilty of the attempted murder of his sister. Because some of the things that the court looked at, for instance, was that Van Breda lived in the security-controlled fancy estate in Stellenbosch where there were cameras and there were foot patrollers and all kinds of security, tight security measures in place. The court looked at the fact that whoever had committed the crime needed to have certain knowledge when it came to inside knowledge about how the estate was laid out, what um, basically the landscape of the particular estate, they were familiar with it, um, and that there was no sign, for instance, of housebreaking when 
The police examined the scene. There was nothing missing. And the court looked at the fact that Van Breda had certain artificial injuries, like superficial, sorry, in injuries, like only light injuries. Um, and in comparison, he, the other family members had been uh, murdered and in fact butchered by the uh, offender. And so the court looked at the fact that Van Breda's version of events when he first got caught on the estate, when he was first, um, when he first rather was, the police first encountered him, uh, was inconsistent with some of the facts of the case. And when Van Breda realized this, he changed his story. So the court looked at all of the facts, right, in order to determine if the state met its burden of proof to overcome Van Breda's presumption that he is innocent, his constitutional presumption of innocence whether the state had met its burden of proof to overcome that presumption, the court looked at all of these facts and the fact that it was uh, clearly an inside job and the fact that the security complex to get inside was nearly impossible, uh, well, not nearly impossible, but extremely difficult because of the security measures. And the court concluded that when you look at all of these facts, the only reasonable inference that the court could draw was that Van Breda had in fact committed these murders and therefore Van Breda was guilty and the state admitted standard of proof that Van Breda was guilty of these murders beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, the next thing that we will recall from civil proceedings was that we encountered this concept of dominus litus and what dominus litus meant is who is the master of proceedings, right? Who uh, ultimately holds responsibility for uh, controlling the proceedings, right, regulating the proceedings. And we had mentioned that it was the plaintiff because the plaintiff was bringing the case or the applicant was bringing the case in the context of civil proceedings. The plaintiff was the master of proceedings. The plaintiff had to ensure, for instance, that they uh, were allocated a trial date. The plaintiff had to ensure that all the papers were properly numbered, etc., etc., because the plaintiff was the master of proceedings or the applicant was the master of proceedings, for instance. Now, under criminal law, it is the responsibility of the state to meet the burden of proof. It is the state who is bringing the case against the accused. In fact, under Section 179.2 of the Constitution, well, 179 subsection 2 of the Constitution, it is only the state in the form of the National Prosecuting Authority who has the authority to bring a case against the particular individual and so it is always the, the the state who is the master of proceedings who is dominus litus because the accused has absolutely no say in whether or not the national prosecuting authority uh will ultimately bring the case to court right so the national prosecuting authority for instance will have the ultimate authority to decide whether or not President Zuma should be prosecuted for particular issues, whether you feel he should or shouldn't be, ultimately doesn't matter because the decision, uh, it doesn't matter in terms of if he's brought to court, in fact, because the decision rests on the National Prosecuting Authority. But it's also important to remember that even though we said it is always the state who brings the case because it is <clears throat> the accused who has this presumption of innocence, so it's always the state who is responsible for um, bringing the case and overcoming this presumption of innocence, our law does make provision for something that we refer to as a 
private prosecution. And we will often coming, we will often encounter these private prosecution uh, cases in the news in the context of particular family members, for instance, whose family were killed by apartheid security forces, killed under apartheid, and who never got any justice, and the National Prosecuting Authority never ever um, laid any charges or initiate any type of prosecution against the individuals who they um, have established uh, are guilty of the offense, right? Who are allegedly guilty, rather, of the offense. So what would happen in those instances is that the Criminal Procedure Act, right, our law of criminal procedure, allows for those private family members to institute what they refer to as a private prosecution. However, a private prosecution is only possible where the particular family member who wants to bring the case or a particular uh, individual who has a personal interest in the case first gets what we refer to as a certificate of prosecution, right? We use fancy Latin words, right? They first obtain the certificate from the Director of Public Prosecutions from the DPP, and the certificate must state that the DPE considered the matter, so the DPE considered whether or not to institute proceedings against this alleged um, offender who allegedly um, uh, committed some kind of crime under apartheid, the uh, DPP needs to say that we've considered the possibility of bringing a case against this uh, person who allegedly committed a crime during apartheid, but we have decided that we are not going to prosecute. So this certificate must show that the uh, Director of Public Prosecutions, the DPP, in fact considered it, and the DPE decided we're not going to go ahead with this prosecution. So a definitive decision has been made that the DPP declined to prosecute, right? That the MPA, rather the National Prosecuting Authority, declined to prosecute. So we have the certificate that's now in the hands of the particular family member or in the hands of someone that has a personal interest in the case. And this certificate now says that the DPP um, considered the case and that they refuse now to prosecute the person. In that case, once the family member, for instance, has that certificate in the hand, they have three months within which to bring the case. So they have three months within, to, within which to prosecute this alleged offender, right? And if these three months lapse and the, part, the private individual, so the family member, for instance, still wants to bring the case against the alleged offender, they will only be allowed to do so if it can be shown that there is sort of exceptional and compelling circumstances. So only in the event that there's exceptional and compelling circumstances or compelling reasons why it is that the private individual did not initially institute prosecutions within that three-month period that the certificate allowed them to do, right, to do so. And it's also important to remember that even though the Criminal Procedures Act allows for private prosecutions, if the, let's say, the, the apartheid member, sorry, the victim under apartheid, uh, the victim of a crime by the apartheid security forces, if they decide to bring a case uh, against this particular police member that was part of the apartheid security forces and they initiate proceedings, the National Prosecuting Authority will always have the right at any stage of the proceedings, whether it's at pleading, uh, so not pleading stage, whether it is the beginning of trial, whether it's in the middle of trial, whether 
the private individual has closed their particular section of the case and they finish with their witnesses, the National Prosecuting Authority will always have the right to take over uh, as dominus of proceedings, to take over from that particular private individual and now run the case and continue to run the case. Now, the, finally, we will look at the differences in civil cases and criminal cases when it comes to the aims or the outcomes of these cases. Because we remember that in civil proceedings, we said that the party comes to the court and they, they either want the court to give them a certain remedy or they seek a de declaration order. They want the court to give clarity on certain circumstances, right? Whereas in criminal proceed proceedings, the reason why the state is bringing the case against the particular accused in or is in order to punish the accused for their, for their crimes, okay? So in the context of criminal proceedings, the accused will either be found guilty or not guilty. And if he's found guilty, then he's ultimately punished for his crimes. Whereas in civil proceedings, when the party brings the case to court seeking a remedy or seeking clarity, the court will either allow the application that the party has brought to the court will ultimately via court order dismiss the application. But it's also important to remember that even though we have this distinction between criminal cases and civil cases, sometimes one particular case can give rise to both uh, criminal proceedings, proceedings and civil proceedings, right? So for instance, if we have a situation where a doctor operates on uh, a mother, right, a single mother, and in the process the doctor is negligent and the doctor um, ends up killing these, the single mother as a result of the doctor's negligence, and the mother now has a three-month-old baby, it is possible that a case can be brought on behalf of that baby to sue that doctor for support because of the fact that the doctor had negligently killed his mother, whilst at the same time it's the, the state then has the, uh, the authority or the discretion rather to decide whether or not they're going to bring a case against the doctor, in this case not for murder, but rather for culpable homicide. And we will look at these different distinctions between murder and culpable homicide soon. So the important thing to remember is that even though we have civil proceedings and we have criminal proceedings and they are clearly two separate um, sections of law, that sometimes this law can overlap. And another example that your notes refer to is the, the, the Riva case in which uh, Oscar Pistorius was uh, found guilty ultimately by the state, guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of having killed Riva. But at the same time, his girlfriend uh, was responsible or had taken on the responsibility of financially supporting uh, Oscar's parents, I'm sorry, not Oscar's parents, of financially supporting her parents rather. And so in that instance, because Riva had been financially supporting her parents, it was always up to the parents to bring a case against Oscar for damages as a result of that loss of financial support. So now we see that the state prosecutes Oscar, establishes beyond a reasonable doubt that he's guilty of Riva's death and is sentenced to 15 years imprisonment. And now the family can also bring a case against Oscar either after the fact or simultaneously with the criminal proceedings in order, in this instance, Reva's parents, in order to get damages because the parents were de de dependent on the money 
that the diva was uh, providing them with while she was alive.